the western wall Maybe a little of that wall Stands inside of us all I shove my prayers in the crack I got nothing to lose No one to answer back All these years I brought up for review Wasn't taught this but I learned something to answer a distant call at the Western Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor at SlashFilm.com and the host of the Slash Filmcast. And joining me today... He is the man who starred in the Lifetime original series, Rita Rocks, Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Rita Rocks. I think that was almost even a... Boy. Yeah, I remember... <laughs> I remember that show. This, this is, you know, last week's show that we did was The X Factor, about things that actors in auditions, you know, you don't expect to do. And in Rita Rocks, I got one of those directions. The director said, come in, Stephen, and take over the room. Uh, it was it was for a scene that took place at like a Christmas party. And come in and take over the room. And if you recall, last season, Ridley Scott told me the same thing. Come in and take over the room. So I realize young actors out there, be aware of things that you can do to take over the room. Because apparently it's something directors want you to do a lot of. Right, nice. This, and that's quite a trajectory, too, from Thelma and Louise, directed by Ridley Scott, to Rita Rocks on uh, Lifetime. Thank you very much for, uh, for, for using the word trajectory. You know, you, you implied that there's a trajectory there, David, uh, which, of course, would be an implication of a downward trajectory. Whoa, whoa, no, no, no. You, your, words, your words for the downward, sir. I, I would never assume that... That a Lifetime uh, original series is, is know, somewhere... You know, we're going to have to do a podcast about calculus and, and trajectory and educate you, David, on the difference between Thelma and Louise and Rita Rocks. Well, that, so sounds, me... that sounds like a good plan, Stephen. You know, but speaking of education, yes. somewhere where people <laughs> go to get education yes. is church or synagogue, oftentimes. This, yes, this is... And, and you know... Uh, you know, we had talked about this a little before in that a, a lot of people don't understand that I'm here in Los Angeles and David is way on the other coast in Boston or occasionally in New York, apparently. And there's a three-hour time difference. And so it's very difficult to find the time for David and I to do these podcasts. And another difficulty, which David was not aware of, is that I go to synagogue usually in the mornings, except when I'm wearing a red Speedo in Californication. We're shooting in the morning. But I go to synagogue usually every morning at 7.30. This was something David was not aware of, which makes us getting together very difficult. And I was trying to explain that when my mother passed away, and, and if 
you folks want to reference, that's episode four, The Alchemist from last season. But when my mother passed away is when I started going back to synagogue regularly. And traditionally, when you've lost a parent, you are obliged to go to services for 11 months, twice a day, early in the morning in our synagogue, that's 7.30 a.m., and in the early evening, which is around sundown. That time kind of varies. The central purpose for attending services is to say a prayer called the Kaddish. And in typical Jewish, expect the unexpected fashion. The Kaddish has absolutely nothing to do with death or dying. There is nothing sad in this prayer at all. Just at a particular moment in the service, uh, they recite the names of those who have passed on. Those saying the Kaddish stand up. And then you say this prayer, which is, strangely enough, a kind of a celebration. And occasionally, the celebration continues because after the service, we pass around a bottle and have a toast to the loved ones. I know it seems odd by modern standards, but consider it a 2,000-year-old prescription for dealing with grief. All celebrating aside, I embark to honor my mother by attending and reciting reciting this prayer with no illusions that I would be able to make it through the entire 11 months, and it all seemed very uncomfortable at first. I began realizing that attending this service makes you a part of a rare club, and it's a club you don't necessarily want to belong to. The only reason most people show up at 7.30 in the morning is because they have lost a parent, they have lost a spouse, and others painfully have lost a child. But it didn't take long for this obligation of attending, the obligation side of it, to vanish. And I actually began to look forward to going to services every day, and I cannot explain to you how or why. But it became like a Rorschach test of where I was that day in dealing with my loss. Some days I'd go and cry through the Kaddish. Some days I would actually laugh and people at services would stare at me, but I was thinking of mom and all the wacky things she did. It was very unpredictable, and there was almost nothing more attractive than unpredictability. After a few weeks, I started becoming interested in the other members of our little group, and one of these members was an 86-year-old man named Abe. <laughs> Abe was in mourning for the passing of his wife. Now, let me tell you about Abe. Abe is a real pistol, always has a bright disposition, big smile, handshake for everyone. Abe stands about five feet, five inches tall, standing on an apple box. He weighs about 100 pounds, soaking wet with a roll of quarters in his pocket. One day, as he was shuffling stiffly from the chapel to his car, I asked him if he wanted to have lunch sometime, and Abe was thrilled. We went to a deli he liked, and he ordered matzo ball soup and a half a corned beef sandwich, neither of which he appeared to eat. He wrapped up the sandwich and put it in a napkin in his pocket, and he was talking fondly about the candy store he used to run in New York and the liquor store he used to run in Los Angeles. And then he asked me if I wanted to drop by his apartment for a schnapps. I felt it was an offer I could not refuse. Now, the schnapps Abe preferred was not technically schnapps, but was Canadian club whiskey. So we poured a couple glasses, and we clinked with the expected l'chaim, 
which I knew meant to life from the musical Fiddler on the Roof, Abe told me he was going to the dermatologist. It was his second visit. On his first trip to have a mole inspected, the doctor noticed a number tattooed on Abe's forearm. The doctor paused and asked Abe where he got it. Abe answered, Auschwitz. The doctor said he would take it off for him. Abe asked how much. The doctor said, for free. You've paid enough already. So Abe was celebrating the removal of his number. And although I I gleaned that he didn't need any specific cause to celebrate for a drink, I got the idea that he celebrated every day and often. I was just lucky enough to join him today. I asked Abe where he was from. He said he grew up in a little town in Poland called Drobin. It was a town with nothing. No cars, no telephones, not even many horses because horses were expensive. There was a liquor store that sold vodka. Abe remembered it was always trouble when the farmers drank. He recalled that once a farmer killed his dog, Blackie, for no reason except that the dog barked and that his family was Jewish. One of Abe's more colorful memories happened in this little town right after the morning service, very much like the service we had just had. The Jewish men of the town would go to synagogue, say the Kaddish, and then they would go out onto the town square and have a shot of schnapps and talk about anything and everything. It was their version of the times. On this particular day, a Cossack on horseback rode up into the crowd of men and started whipping people at random. Then he rode off, and then a few minutes later, he came back and started the beatings again. Abe's uncle stepped in front of the horseman and told him to leave. The Cossack turned and rode out of the square and then doubled back and charged Abe's uncle and struck him with the whip. Abe's uncle reached up, grabbed the Cossack, pulled him off the horse, threw him down on the ground. A fight ensued, and Abe's uncle kicked the Cossack in the head and killed him. In the chaos, Abe remembers his father grabbing his uncle and saying, you have to leave town quick before the authorities found out what happened. Abe paused in telling me the story and licked his lips and asked me if I wanted another drink. I said, absolutely. Abe poured another round of Canadian Club. We clinked glasses to your health and to yours. Abe continued. That night in Drobin, the police came to Abe's house and asked to search the premises. Abe's father asked them, are you looking for me? The police said, no, we're looking for your brother-in-law. And Abe's father answered, then why the hell don't you go look for him at his house? Abe laughed when he told me this and took a sip, saying, were they kidding? He killed a Cossack and he's Jewish, and they thought he was going to sit around and have dinner? My uncle was long gone by then. In fact, he was probably out of the damn country, if you pardon my French. Abe laughed until he had to wipe tears away and said, what a bunch of dumb bastards. I asked Abe if he had any girlfriends when he was a boy. Abe smiled and said, Lots, and I wanted to have lots more. See, I was always very good in school, good with numbers, and I would help some of the girls with their homework. Abe got this terribly devilish grin and sipped some whiskey. And I said, Abe, what did you do on dates? You said there's nothing to do in your town. Abe (laughs) continued grinning and said, there was nothing, and we didn't need nothing. There were woods near the village. You take a girl, you sneak off into the forest, what else do you need? I raised my glass to Abe on that one. Here is to you, Abe. And he replied, thank you, sir. 
Abe, when did you first know that there was going to be trouble with the Nazis in Germany? Abe looked at me amused. He said, when they took over the whole goddamn country, the Polish army went to fight them and was almost over before it started. We saw the boys going to the front, and in two weeks, they were either dead or running back home. The Nazis came into our village when I was 16. They came riding in a line of trucks, shooting guns into the air. I asked, where did they go first? Abe said, they set up headquarters in the church. Pause. Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? that they didn't set up headquarters in a school or take over the town hall that already existed. They took over the church. And I suspect it wasn't because they were religious or they wanted God on their side. Abe said they did it because the church was so big. But it also helps to destroy the center of religion in a town. It's a method used by the ancient Babylonians when they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. It was used by Julius Caesar in his invasion of Gaul. It was used by the barbarians in their destruction of Rome. It's textbook for destroying a people. You start with their beliefs. Without something to believe in, it's easy to destroy anyone. After you break the spirit, then you break the body. The Nazis set up a system of hard labor for the men and boys of the town. They organized a group of the most prominent Jews in the town called the Judenrat to pick out the work details. The work shift was a 16-hour day of meaningless work, breaking rocks with picks and hammers, moving boulders from one place to another. The men in the council weren't paid money for their efforts, but their power came from being able to choose who was to work and who would not. As a result, they were able to keep their friends and their families out of the work gangs. This one power gave them the illusion of status and consequently safety. Abe recalled his older brother, Tovia. His eye lit up with admiration at the mention of that name. Tovia was smarter than me by a long shot, smarter in everything, especially religious things. Every morning he read the Torah in our little shul. Batovia was always sick and weak, and they put his name on the list of work, so I went in and worked for him. One of the men at the Judenrat saw that I was working for my brother, and he went and put my name on the list for the same day, so I would have to work a double shift. And this bastard was a Jew. He whispered to me, if you can work for your brother, you're strong enough to work for me too. The work went on for a couple of months. And then the Nazis started breaking up the Jewish families. They would send half the family away to a different city. And, and this is all very logical. It's probably something you could learn at an anthropology class at a university. In fact, there are probably papers written on the subject by Carl Jaspers or Eric Fromm. If you never knew where half of your family was, you were inclined to do as you were told for fear that bad behavior on your part could lead to reprisals. It's a subtle but effective form of control and terror. On a side note, this is the same thing that was done by the Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Families were split apart. Wives and daughters of the Hebrews were raped by the Egyptian overseers while their husbands and sons worked on the pyramids. And to make the work more torturous, the Egyptians took away straw that was used to bind the bricks so the bricks would crumble making it impossible for the men to meet their quotas, which led to physical beatings. Eventually, people weren't broken by their work. 
but were broken because their work was meaningless. Abe and his mother, Hannah Feige, and his brother, Tovia, and their two sisters, Cyril and Golda, were sent to Poichikov, to the Jewish ghetto. Now, for people who don't know, a ghetto was a part of the city that was walled off, and any Jew escaping this area was shot. The Jews inside the ghetto tried to survive because there was very little food or water that could be found. Abe was 16. 16. And he could see there was no future here, only death. There's no food. His mother was getting weaker by the day. She couldn't walk. So they had a family meeting. They decided to split up. Abe and Tovia and his older sister, Cyril, would try to get back to their village, while their younger sister, Golda, would remain with Abe's mother. They left that night, and Abe never heard from them again. He assumed that Golda and his mother were starved to death. In the living room, Abe poured some more whiskey into our glasses and muttered, Rotten bastards. Abe and his brother and his sister escaped at midnight, and they traveled day and night, staying away from the roads, hiding in the forests. They made it about 140 miles before they were captured by the Nazis. Now they were sent to the Warsaw Ghetto. In the ghetto, Abe saw that people were already starving to death. Abe muttered the ghetto was no good place. So again, the three of them escaped. Abe said they were like the three musketeers, a team. And this time they made it back to the village. Abe's older brother, Simon, was still living in their house, so for a couple of months they had a home. I asked Abe, what was going through his mind this whole time? It was a nightmare. How was he able to go on? Abe shook his head and said, Stephen, I have to tell you the truth. We all thought the war would be over soon. The Germans were so strong. We thought it would all be done in a week or two, at most. We even thought we would be able to go and bring home our mother and Golda. We didn't think much about the Germans being anti-Semites because the Polacks, they were anti-Semites too. We were used to it. We had no idea. Finally, the Germans decided to remove all the Jews from Abe's village, and they were transported to another ghetto in the town of Malava. They lived in the ghetto for a month. Then one night, at 1 a.m., Soldiers came knocking on their doors. At gunpoint, they were told to leave everything behind. They were told they were being sent out on a work detail. They were put on a train bound for Auschwitz. I got a heart full of fear And I offer it on the psalter of tears Red dust settles deep in my skin I don't know where it starts The three musketeers, Abe, Tovia, and Cyril, arrived on the train to Auschwitz-Birkenau. As soon as they got off the train, the women and children were separated from the men and boys who were old enough to work. Most of the women and children were killed within 15 minutes of their arrival. Cyril was one of them. Tovia was separated from Abe. He was sent to work in the building with no windows. This was the crematoria. Members of the Judenrad, ironically, were also sent to the crematoria to be workers. Abe told me the building was made with no windows so that no one would know what was going on there and to muffle the screams. At the beginning, 
prisoners were led to believe this was a work camp, but Abe knew right away that no one was going to get out alive. The Nazis put a tattoo on Abe's arm indicating which number prisoner he was. He was prisoner 80,633. From that moment on, Abe had no name. He was 80633. He was guarded by another prisoner called a capo. Abe's capo was a gay man from Germany who also bore a tattoo. But his number was low, in the low 10,000s. Abe said he couldn't remember the exact number, but he knew something that low meant that his capo had been a prisoner from the very beginning and speculated that he could have even been one of the prisoners who built Auschwitz-Birkenau. Germany was bent not only on eliminating Jews— but also homosexuals. Abe said his kappa was a hell of a nice guy. His boyfriend's name was David. He used to tell me, you Jews will survive, but it's over for me and David. We'll never get out of this place alive. Every morning, Abe was sent out to work, and Tovia would walk out into the yard by the crematoria and wave to him. After only three weeks in camp, Tovia was no longer there. Abe yelled for him, and a man from the Judenrod came to the border wire surrounding the crematoria, shook his head, and drew his finger across his throat. Abe said at that moment he knew Tovia was no more. I asked Abe what he did on his work detail. Abe said, nothing. We hit rocks. We made stone walls. We cleared brush. Nothing. The bastards just wanted to wear us down. But I had some brains. As soon as the guards walked away, I stopped. And as soon as I heard them coming, I started again. After a while, they found out I was good with numbers, and they moved me into the office. Our camp was responsible for sending potatoes to all the other camps, and I could figure out in my head how many baskets we had, how to divide them up. The two Germans guarding me were not Nazis. They were Wehrmacht. That was regular army. They were farmers before the war and had no education. They probably couldn't even write their names, but they were kind. I was lucky. If they ever came up to me today and I needed something, I would give it to them. Anything. Hell of a couple of nice guys. I drink to them. Abe and I raised our glasses. We clinked and sipped. I refilled both and said, Abe, did you ever have a good day at Auschwitz? Abe laughed and said, Many of them. Are you kidding me? We knew there was no tomorrow. We knew there was no hope. So we took pleasure where we could find it. I said, Abe, you know, I'm not even sure if hope has ever helped anyone. You know, hope was in Pandora's box. Abe screwed up his face and said, What? I, I said, Pandora's box. He said, What the hell are you talking about? I said, Never mind, Abe. Never mind. He said, I had one moment of hope, and let me tell you, Stephen, it helped me plenty. After a year and a half in the death camp at Birkenau, I looked through the wire over to Auschwitz, and I saw Simon, my oldest brother. I yelled, Simon, and he turned and he waved to me. It was only a second, but I knew he was alive. I knew I was not alone. Stephen, that was a great day. Abe. You said you saw your brother and that gave you strength. But you also said you had pleasure where you could find it. Where could you find it? 
What do you mean? You were in the worst place on earth. Abe smiled and said, from women. What do you think? Pause. As my mind was completely boggled. I said, women? You had women at Auschwitz? Abe smiled warmly and nodded. Her name was Hanka. Absolutely beautiful. She was in the woman's section. Now, I may have rocks for brains now, but I know a beautiful woman. She had black hair and blue eyes. To be with a woman so beautiful, there's nothing like it in the world, Stephen. We met whenever we could. I needed a drink. I said, Abe, how often did you meet? He said, are you kidding? Always. What the hell? I was in the camp three years. I was 18, 19, 20 years old. She was 19. What were we supposed to do? I said, Abe, how long could you get away to make love to Hanka without getting caught? Abe shrugged his shoulders and said, eh, 15 minutes? You know, we weren't in a hotel. Wow, wow, wow. I said, Abe, no matter how you cut it, that is nerve. How did you manage to get over to the women's side of the camp? Abe said, the two German officers, the one guarding me, they would protect me. They had girlfriends over there too. Like I said, not all soldiers were Nazis. My mind was reeling. I'm trying to put myself in Abe's shoes. I said, Abe, I couldn't do it. I would be terrified I would get caught. Abe shook his head, looked out the window again. I did. I did get caught. I said, you're kidding. I said, not at all. Understand, Stephen, the SS were bastards. The Gestapo terrible bastards. But the worst of all was the Volksdeutsch. I, I said, what is that? He said, it was a German born in Poland who spoke perfect German, perfect Polish, perfect Hebrew, better than me, perfect Yiddish, better than me. Once I was coming back from my girlfriend and the Volksdeutsch came up to me and stopped me. He asked me where I had been. I said, nowhere. He said, you weren't screwing that girl, but he said it in a filthy Yiddish, Stephen, that no Jews would use. Filthy. I told him, no, I was just taking a break from the office. And he yelled at me and said, no, you weren't. And he whirled around and had a shovel in his hand and he split my head open. The two German guards came up and the Volksdeutsch said to him, give him hell. He threw the shovel on the ground and walked off. I asked Abe, what did you do? Did they have a hospital? Abe took a sip of whiskey. Are you kidding me? I would see fools get sick and hurt and they would go to the hospital. Stephen, there's no hospital. They send them straight to the crematoria. No, I put a cloth on my head to soak up the blood and I went back to the office to work. I was bleeding and I was sick for days. My two Germans, they didn't give me hell. They gave me extra food and potatoes. They said, you take what you need. Hell of a nice couple guys. They saved my life, I'm sure. I said, Abe, whatever happened to them? He said, I have no idea. We didn't stay at Auschwitz-Birkenau. I was in the camp for three years, and there was word that the Russians and the Americans were so close that they brought in trains. But these trains were open cattle carts. They had no roofs, and they loaded the prisoners who were alive in. They threw slices of bread into the cart, and the people would fight for the bread. If a piece landed in your lap, you were lucky. You would live. There was no water. 
We ate rain and snow to stay alive. I said, Abe, I have a horrible question. I don't understand why you were fed anything if the purpose was to kill you. Abe said, because they didn't want to kill us all at once. They needed some of us to work, to dig the graves, to work the ovens. The train headed for Germany. It was freezing. People died in the car. We stepped over the bodies, tried to throw the bodies out. They were taking us to another camp deep in Germany. I said, where did you end up, Abe? He said, another death camp, but small, somewhere in the middle of the goddamn forest. Every day we were marched into the trees, and the Nazis would shoot a few of us as we walked. Every day a few more. We started with 200 or so. By the end, there were only 35 of us left. I said, they just murdered you. Yeah, yeah, Abe said. They just shot you in the back with pistols for no reason, left the bodies on the ground. I said, Abe, not that any of this makes sense, but why? Why did they do that? Abe sat forward and smiled. He says, now this is interesting. The last day I was in the camp, I woke up and the whole place was deserted. Completely deserted, no Germans. They left silently in the middle of the night. Just us few Jews left, alone in the camp. We were terrified. We had no idea what had happened. The gates were open. We didn't know if it was a trap or a trick, but we decided to walk out. We headed through the woods, and we saw the bodies in the woods that had been stripped of their clothes. So, I think the Germans knew the war was ending, and they killed as many prisoners as they could and switched clothes with them so they could escape and pretend to be Jews. We kept walking. There were no soldiers anywhere. Three of us made it to a farmhouse, and we looked in the window of the kitchen, and we could see a framed photograph on the wall. It was the picture of a young man in an SS uniform, so I figured it had to be a son or a husband. Someone in the family was a Nazi officer, so we had to be quiet. We hid in their barn to sleep. We were there for three days. Eventually, a farm woman came out and said, I know you're here. Come in and get something to eat. She fed us and then at the end said, when you see the Americans, tell them we fed you. Tell them that we were good Germans. After the war ended, things went crazy. Some Jews returned home and found everything they owned was taken away from them. Some were shot dead on the spot. Imagine, Stephen, to survive the camps only to go home to be murdered. The Germans were terrified that the Jews would take revenge on them, and some of them did. One Jewish man I know went into a shop and killed every German in the store, and he said he would keep killing them. I said, Abe, what did you do? He goes, me? I knew my brother Simon was alive, so I tried to find him. Also, after the war, I have to say there were women. Abe seemed to get a little modest. Stephen, I think they were afraid to say no to a prisoner. It was like we had no power during the war, and now we had all the power. I went to Italy and was helped by the Americans. I was given shelter and food. I got strong again. And there I found a man who said he thought he knew my brother. And he took me there. And he was right. Simone and I found each other. I said, Abe, you had nothing after the war. How did you get around? Abe took a drink and his whole face lit up with a huge smile. He said, we went to the synagogues. 
I, I said, I don't follow. He said, we went to the shul after the war and each of us tore out a page from the prayer book. We held it up wherever we went. People would see the page and they knew who we were and they gave us food, they gave us transportation, they gave us clothes. We just showed them the torn page with the Hebrew prayers. It was our passport. It was all the papers we needed. So Abe, did you ever go back to Poland? He said, are you crazy? The Polacks were the worst anti-Semites. I stayed in Germany and Italy where they were afraid of us. I sold clothing and eventually I came to America with my brother. We lived in New Jersey and there we found another of my brothers who survived. So the three of us moved to the Bronx and I bought a candy shop and worked there for years. I said, that's amazing that you found each other after the war. Now, Abe, I was afraid to ask, did your girlfriend Hanka survive Auschwitz? He said, survive? Are you kidding me? Listen to this, Stephen. I'm in New York, and one day there's a knock at my door. It's Hanka. She found me. She came to America and heard I was in New York, and she found me. She asked me if I wanted to marry her now that the war was over. I told her I couldn't because my brother still wasn't married. He was older than me, and in our village, we had to marry according to age. Oh, Stephen, she was so beautiful, a remarkable woman. I heard she went to Israel and is married and has a family there, to Hanka. I lifted my class to Hanka, to her health. We clinked, and Abe continued, to her health and happiness always. Oh, and Stephen, something else. I said, yes, Abe. He said, my uncle, you remember my uncle, the man who killed the Cossack? I said, yes. He said, he escaped our village and he made it to America. He lived in New Jersey too. He had six daughters. All of them became truck drivers. Imagine that. Six girls, all of them truck drivers. I said, well, if you do something well. And he said, oh, they did it well. I think they made a fortune. And one of his daughters, I said, the truck driver. He goes, right, the truck driver. She had a son that played for the New York Yankees, Buddy Meyerson. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, the Yankees. He was a wonderful player, and he would have had a great career, but they didn't let Jews play in the big leagues back then. I said, Abe, I got to ask you, how do you think this could happen, that people could do this to other people? Abe didn't think about it for very long. He says, because they're bastards. It's that simple. They tortured us because they could. I said, but Abe, the Germans were educated people. Abe said, very. I said, they had poets like Heinrich Heine, composers like Beethoven, Bach, scientists, artists. Abe said, they had the works. It didn't matter. They wanted to kill us. They found a way to do it. I said, out of everyone you met during that time, who was the best, the most impressive? Again, Abe didn't take long to think. He said, my two Germans, I would give them anything if I could see them today. I'd give them the clothes off my back. I'm no millionaire, Stephen, but if one of them needed $5,000, I would give it to him and say, if you could pay me back, fine. If not, fine. I said, Abe, who was the biggest son of a bitch, the worst you ever met? Abe answered without hesitation. That Jewish bastard on the Judenrod who gave me the double shift when he found out I was working for Tovia, my sick brother. I said, Abe, I was sure you were going to say the Volksdeutsch who hit you with the shovel. Abe laughed and said, hey, 
don't get me wrong, Stephen, he was a real son of a bitch too. <laughs> he tried to kill me. But the other, there was no excuse for that. And it got him nothing. He ended up in the crematoria just like all the others. Stephen, would you like a piece of cake or some herring or something? I said, no, Abe, I'm still full from lunch. I actually ate. He said, but you have to have something, maybe some chocolate. I said, no, Abe, no, uh, maybe a little more schnapps. Abe said, well, of course, you know what they say, two shots is like one shot and one shot is like nothing. I laughed and I said, well, Abe, then what is three shots? He said, three shots is like one shot, which is like no shot, so we have to start all over again. Abe laughed. I said, it sounds complicated, but maybe I will have a piece of cake after all. You are the boss, Mr. Tobolovsky. Abe got up slowly from his chair, shuffled to the kitchen for the apple cake and a knife. As I watched him, I recognized how we all love tales of people like Abe, who by luck and by wits survived great suffering. We like to see ourselves struggling against all odds to have a good day at Auschwitz. But in truth, most of us are not Abe, nor, thank God, are we the Volksdeutsch battering the helpless with a shovel. The person I suspect we most resemble in this story is the German farm woman whose son or husband was in the SS, the woman who lived on the other side of the trees from the death camp, the woman who offers breakfast to Abe and his compatriots with the words, tell them we were good Germans. Abe called to me from the kitchen, Mr. Tobolovsky, maybe you want to take some cake home to your boys? No, no thanks, Abe. My boys don't deserve any apple cake. They've been very naughty this week. Whatever, whatever you say, you're the boss. You want to play some cards? I said, sure, Abe. I have a little time. I could play, I could play a couple of hands. Where's the deck? He said, well, there should be one on the table. I found it under a clutter of bills and snapshots of Abe and his wife and their son taken over the years. Abe continued, in Droben, we played cards all the time. It's what I played with the girls when we were supposed to be working on our homework. I love cards. It reminds me how lucky I am. Abe came back from the kitchen with two plates of apple cake. I shuffled the deck and began to deal. Maybe what draws us to people like Abe is that they've seen the other side and come back to tell us and maybe warn us. The other side I refer to is the other side of ourselves. It's interesting to me that the Hebrew word for heart is lev, L-V-V, -V, spelled with two Vs. Double letters in Hebrew are very rare. And it was explained to me that the double V represents the two sides of the human heart, the impulse for good and the impulse for evil. Abe picked up his hand and looked at it and started laughing. Mr. Tobo, I think I've already won. I have some beautiful cards here. I said, hey, 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 we'll see, Abe, we'll see. I will only need two cards. I said, oh, dear, and I picked up my hand, looked at it. I just had a pair, not terrible, but not a winner. I took a final sip of schnapps and said, I will take three. And Abe laughed at me and said, I think you are going to lose. I have this feeling. I said, not so fast, Abe, not so fast. Sometimes you can hope for a lucky draw. Abe downed his shot and said, luck's got nothing to do with it. At this point, I wasn't sure if he was the luckiest or unluckiest man in the world, but Abe won the card game with three queens. 
His story that afternoon made me tremble. I think there's something in it that makes all of us tremble. The essential question, are we people of the book or people of the bargain, willing to do anything in the moment to stay on the right side of the barbed wire? In the final analysis, there may be nothing more true in understanding human evil than Abe's declaration, they tortured us because they could, because they were bastards. That's simple. And I'm hoping there's also some truth in his boast that luck's got nothing to do with it. There's an old Cherokee story of a boy who comes to his father. The boy has had a nightmare, and he tells his father that he dreamed of two wolves fighting. The father listens patiently and explains to his son that we all have two wolves battling inside of us. One is strong and kind and good. He's compassionate and loving. The other wolf is vicious murderous, greedy, and jealous, and they fight all day, and they fight all night. And the little boy is terrified and asks his father, which one wins? The father answers, the one you feed. That was A Good Day in Auschwitz, a series of stories told by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, as we always like to do, uh, we like to read emails from Tobolowsky Files listeners. And this Excellent. email comes from Matt from Argentina, who's listening to the Tobolowsky Files, responding to episode 29, the classic about Groundhog Day. He writes in, Hi, my name is Matt. I'm from Argentina. I just listened to your podcast on Groundhog Day, one of my favorite films, and I wanted to thank you for your memorable performance and for your insightful description of what shooting was like and the evolution process the film went through. I agree. It's a classic, and it is a film full of meaning, and the alternate versions you discuss are definitely inferior to the finished product. I was especially thrilled by the bit about the tie about the final scene that was broken by the bold and true statement regarding Bill's clothing and it breaking the movie. I was also delighted to find out you wrote the scene, which is pivotal to me. When your character Ned tells Phil that it's the best day in his life, he replies, stating, it's his too. And that, for me, marks the precise moment when the powers that be allow him to move on. He's finally topped the beach and pina colada day, and he's topped it (laughs) by changing as a person. Powerful stuff. Uh, and that's the email. Thank you, Matt, for writing that in. And indeed, that was uh, that was a powerful movie and a great podcast. Episode twenty nine, the classic, in which Stephen recounts the making of Groundhog Day. Um, but Stephen, if people want to write in more emails, how can they do that, sir? Uh, at uh, Stephen Tobolowski at gmail dot com, and I'll spell that S T E P H E N T as in Tom O B as in boy O L O W S K Y at gmail.com. Also at Twitter, at twitter.com slash Tobolowsky. And at facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky. Nicely done, Stephen. Nicely done. It's, it's <laughs> taken many months of training, oh, but uh, and, you and are now, you're now Chen a pro. the whip in the chair. It's brutal. There you go. My name is David Chen. You can find more of my work at slash filmcast.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. And we also like to give a big shout out to SlashFilm.com, the movie blog that makes all of this possible. Uh, thanks to SlashFilm.com for hosting us. Check it out if you guys are into movies, which if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are. That's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of The Tobolowsky Files. 
Thank you guys for listening and have a great week. Bye-bye. You know